I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Philippians chapter 4. Now, Philippians chapter 4, it's hard to believe that we have reached the end of this book. What an encouragement it has been, I know, to my own soul, and I hope that it has been to yours as well, as over the past uh, a little over five months, we have traveled through this letter to the church at Philippi. And we have seen the heart of the Apostle Paul uh, on display, perhaps more here than maybe in any other place uh, uh, in the New Testament, because we see the Apostle Paul's heart for a church that was, in, in many ways, just doing exactly what it was intended to do. Uh, Paul, oftentimes, when he would write to the churches, had to offer correction or rebuke and things that were going on. But here we see a difference here in this church in that they were just faithfully preaching the gospel, faithfully living out the Christian life, faithfully doing what Paul had encouraged them to do. And you can just see the joy from a pastor's heart in, in knowing that, that God's people were responding to his, his work in their lives, but more importantly, responding to the work of God in their lives. And in that faithful obedience, Paul was just filled with such joy. It has been said by so many different commentators that the theme of the book of Philippians is just the joy of the Christian life. It's just the joy that overwhelms and overflows uh, from someone and from those who are inside of Christ. So if you found your way there, let us stand for the last time in reading from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, and we are going to start at verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You can be seated this morning. Now here in the final words of this letter, Paul addresses the needs of the believers at Philippi. He offers his doxology of praise to God, and he also gives the fellowship and greeting of the saints in the church. In our last week's exposition, we listened as Paul taught by practical experience the necessity and the beauty of Christian contentment. A contentment not based on situation or circumstance, and a contentment not based on the possessions that we have, but based upon a life of faith in Christ alone. Paul taught them and he taught us that to be content in Christ is one of the most profound things that we can do as believers, trusting and knowing that God will provide for our needs. Paul had experienced this in many different times in his ministry, and he had experienced it most recently through the gift that the church at Philippi had sent through Epaphroditus to him there as he was in prison in Rome Paul expressed his thankfulness to the church for their generosity, but Paul didn't want to think that in the midst of his thankfulness, in the midst of his excitement over their generosity, he didn't want them to think that they had been forgotten. Paul was so overwhelmed in, in seeing what they had done and, and seeing that they had given, and oftentimes they had given sacrificially. They had given not out of an abundance, but had given really in a sense out of a lack. Uh, they, they didn't really have to give, but they gave anyway because they believed in the work of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this alludes us to the fact of something that I've heard said many times, and I've said it a couple of times I know during this series through the book of Philippians, is that generosity, you don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. Because generosity is not about the amount of money we have, but the attitude 
of which our heart is in. And this is much as the church at Philippi was. But Paul didn't want the saints to feel that if God had forgotten them, he, he's talking so much about God's provision in his own life. He's talking so much about God's faithfulness in his own life. He's talking so much about how thankful he is that they had chosen to send this uh, abundant gift to him that he didn't want them to feel like, well, we're getting left out. Here, here Paul here is talking about all of this provision, but what about us, Paul? What, is, what will God do for us? Because the scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. There are no elites when it comes to the body of Christ. There are no those who are on a higher pedestal than others. And just as God cared deeply about and provided for the needs of the Apostle Paul, God also deeply cared about and would provide for the needs of every believer at the church of Philippi. And brothers and sisters, the beautiful news for us this morning is that God cares about and loves each and every one of you as his children, and he will provide for every need that you have. I want you to notice first off in this text, the provision of God, and it's found there in verse 19. Notice what Paul says. He says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament book of Micah, they would find these words, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There's a beautiful promise that Paul points out here in the very first opening words of this verse. He talks about the relational aspect of this promise. He's giving them a promise here. He's giving them a truth to be held. This is not a thing that Paul says, I I hope that this will happen or we will just pray that this will happen. No, Paul says God is going to do this. God will do this for you. And notice there at the beginning, he talks about the relational aspect of it because he says he's not just talking about that a God will provide for you or the God will provide for you. But notice the words he uses there. He says, my God will supply all your needs. And John Calvin said he expressly makes mention of God as his because he owns and acknowledges as done to himself whatever kindness is shown to his servants. The Apostle Paul points out, he says, this is my God. He talks about the relationship that he has with Christ. Because the promise that Paul is making here is one that only God could accomplish. Paul could not repay the church at Philippi in his current situation. He he had no means to make money. He had no means to go out for gainful employment. Paul knew that he could not repay the church at Philippi, but he knew one who could, and that was his God. He says, my God can do this for you. Paul used this language in other letters because this idea was a key part of Paul's doctrine and his robust faith, that he had a God who he knew by more than just words on a page or by just hearing about it from his forefathers. You see, Paul's faith was not an empty faith. It was not a vague faith. There are so many people in in different cultures and different foreign religions and cults who when they talk about God, they talk about God as a distant deity. Their God is a God who exists somewhere in some place in some realm, but they have no close relationship with them. They have no intimacy of relationship with their God. When Muslims talk about Allah, he is some distant being that they worship and, and, and obey, but they have no intimacy with him. They're not close to him. When Buddhists talk about their God or, or the Hindus talk about their God, there are no closeness there. There's a distance between them and their deity. But the beautiful thing about Christianity, 
The beautiful thing about the true God of the universe is not that he is some distant deity who sits aloft on a throne somewhere that we cannot come close to, but that he has adopted us into his family and that we are his children and that he is our God. We have a relationship with him. We have a closeness to him. Think about this if you were to describe your parents, right? You don't describe your parents as, oh, that's the dad and the mom over there. No, you say, that's my dad. That's my mom. Because there's a difference between that two set of people and everybody else's parents, right? It's, it's, it's the, the relationship that you have with your mom and dad is different than the relationship that you have with your best friend's parents or your neighbor's parents because there's something about the relationship that makes all the difference. You know that as a child, your parents are going to take care of you. You know that as a child, you can go to your parents at any time to, to get those things that you need. You know that they have committed in, 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 in having children. They've committed, I'm going to take care of you and watch over you and provide for you and do everything that is necessary for you to grow. And we have such a relationship with the God of all creation. The God who formed the earth by just speaking words. The God who holds the cosmos in his hand and holds it all together. He's not just a God or the God. He is my God. Paul had a living and an active faith. He knew that his God knew him. And Paul also knew this same promise was true for all of those who had saving faith. Paul would use this language over and over. He, Romans chapter one, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And Philemon, I thank my God always. Do you know this God this morning? Do you know God in such a way? Do you understand that this is how your relationship is with God as a child of God, that he is your God? Paul talks about this relational aspect. But secondly, I want you to notice Paul talks about the provisional aspect because he says that God would supply all your needs. The Jews had a statement that they would often use when they were comforting one another on the loss of some type of worldly possession or enjoyment. Uh, they would say to one another, there's a way to, to comfort one another. Well, God will fulfill your need. And here, Paul is using similar language to describe what God would do for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, God will supply all your needs. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to be so careful when we read the scriptures that we don't just read them at face value, that we don't just glance over them as we read them and just get so caught up in the idea of just reading the Bible that we miss what the Scripture is telling us over and over and over again. Listen to what the psalmist says there. He says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That, that is a promise. It is a promise not limited to a certain group of people in a sense of, of inside the church that only those who are most uprightly or, or the greatest uprightly. He says, for all of those who walk uprightly, if you are a child of God, if you are obedient to him, if you're doing what God has called you to do, you're walking by faith, he says, no good thing will God withhold from you. This is why Paul could be so confident in making this statement. 
You see, as Christians, especially I think as modern day Christians, we have the tendency to hold back in declaring the promises of God for one another. Paul had no reservation in writing this letter to this church and describing to all of them and talking to every single person. He says, God will supply all your needs. But oftentimes when we're talking to someone and we hear about a situation that they're in, a difficult problem that they're walking through, we, we have the tendency to say, well, well, we'll just pray, brother or sister, that, uh, that, that perhaps God might do something here. Well, no, the scripture says that God will do something here. And we need to have the confidence and faith in Christ to be able to speak as boldly as the apostle Paul does here. That when we see a brother or sister going through a circumstance, we don't know how God's going to do it. We don't know when God's going to do it, but we do know that according to his word, that God is going to do it. And we can speak with boldness to say, brother or sister, God will provide for all of your needs. God will not withhold any good thing from those who are walking uprightly. How is Paul so confident in this fact? Because he had experienced it himself. Paul's entire life was a testimony, not only of God's ability to do something, but of God's willingness to do what he had promised to do. We have no doubt as Christians in the security of our salvation. We have no doubt that we are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we know that our sins are forgiven and that we have everlasting life. We are confident in that fact. But why do we struggle so much in being confident in the fact that God has promised that he will provide the things that we need in this life? Does God only tell the truth about our salvation, or does he tell the truth about everything? Well, it's obvious he tells the truth about everything. And if he tells the truth about everything, then we can have this same assurance for our own lives, as Paul said to the church here, and is so replete throughout the scriptures that God will provide. Remember what the psalmist said, what David said in just the first part of the 23rd Psalm. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That means that we don't live a life of want or desire because God will provide as our great shepherd. Now, it might be said by some, well, no, wait a minute. You know, perhaps Paul here is not talking about physical things. Perhaps Paul here is talking about the spiritual needs of the church at Philippi. And and yes, God will provide all the spiritual needs that we have. The language here and the context of which Paul is talking about here is not pointing to the spiritual needs of the individuals. It's pointing to the physical needs of these individuals and the things that they have in their lives. Now note, however, that Paul does not say that my God will supply all your wants according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Just as a parent must sometimes help a child to understand the distinction between needs and wants, so Paul lays it out to the believers as well. God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But this is not to say that God is limited or that in any and every instance that he only gives only what is needed and nothing more. There are times when this is how God works. God gives us just what we need at that moment to provide. 
I've heard countless stories of, of individuals who, who had a bill that came up that was unexpected for $250. They didn't know how they were going to pay it. They prayed. They believed. They went to the mailbox the next day. There's a rebate check in the mailbox for $250. God provided what they needed in that moment. But there are other times that God not only gives us what we need, but he goes above and beyond. He goes exceeding abundant above more than we can ask or think. Because sometimes the provision of God is bountiful and generous. But when it's bountiful and generous, that is a gift from God. It is a blessing from him. And is not because we have demanded or expected that he would give us that way in all times. Paul can have such confidence in this because he knows that God is able to do and to fulfill this promise. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God has everything at his disposal. And God is able to do this. But we also understand from the scriptures that God is willing to do this. God is willing to do this because he's promised over and over that he would do this, that he provides for those who are his children. But God also points out that he provides for those and he does for those who are part of the work of the kingdom of God. He says, there's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Why could Paul make this promise to the church of Philippi? Because he knew God was able, he knew God was willing, and he knew that the church of Philippi had done what God had asked them and expected them to do. They had shown generosity to the work of the gospel. They had given towards the work of the kingdom. And because they had done that, they knew that God had promised that he would bless those who were generous, that he would bless those who had done those good things. John Gill, the predecessor to Spurgeon there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London said this, God does so. He withholds no good thing from them, nor do they want any good needful thing for them, for he supplies all their need. And this they may expect since he is the God of all grace and a fullness of grace is in his son and this grace is sufficient for them and a supply of it is given them by the spirit, end quote. So Paul says, God will do this for you. God will supply for all your needs. Now notice how Paul says that God will do this. He says that it's according to his riches in glory according to his riches in glory. Now, there's some wording here which needs to be considered. Paul says that God will supply all their needs according to his riches. He doesn't say that God will repay them out of his riches, but according to his riches. This was not just the slice off of the top of God's riches, like a wealthy man dropping change into the cup of a beggar. 
but this was out of the abundance of his riches. Uh, the word that Paul uses here for riches means abundant fullness, and it points to the fact that God's resources are inexhaustible. As I said, if a rich man were to walk down the street and sees a beggar and he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the spare change and drops it into his cup, that's the rich man giving out of his riches. But if that rich man takes the beggar home and he clothes them and he puts him up in a bedroom and he feeds him and he provides for him and he does all of these things, that is out of the abundance of his riches. That's according to his riches. You know, you and I might come to a place in our life where our wallet and our bank account are empty, but praise be to God that God's account is never overdrawn. There is a richness and an abundance there that can never be depleted. And as God provides for his own, he does so in glory. Paul says that God would provide for all his riches in glory. And really that word glory here is modifying the verb supply. So as to say, as one commentator said, God will gloriously supply. So let's read it in that sense. And my God will gloriously supply all your needs according to his riches. God's not just going to supply, but to gloriously supply for the believers at Philippi. He says, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That last part tells us the avenue by which these things are bestowed. How do the blessings come to those who are in the church at Philippi? Well, they come to us in Christ Jesus. Paul uses this over and over again. In the book of Philippians, he talks about all of these different things and these ways and these blessings that are found in Christ, in Christ Jesus. He, he always points back to that because it's, it's paramount for us to understand that the, the walk of the Christian life, the things that God has promised here are not just for any individual who's out there in the world, but for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at a proper time. When Jesus died, he became the mediator between us and God. He is the avenue by which God's blessings are funneled down to us. All the blessings that God, Paul here had pointed out that were coming to the saints would come to them through their relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ Jesus, then you understand this promise. You understand this avenue. But now this whole promise that Paul gives to the church here, that God would supply all their needs according to his abundant riches in Christ Jesus. This was not a call for the church at Philippi, for the saints there to abandon care and to become lazy. Paul was not saying, okay, God's going to provide for all your needs, so you guys just sit back at home, eat bonbons, sit by the campfire, and just enjoy life. It's not what Paul's saying here. He's not advocating that they should just despise work now that they've received this promise that God would provide for them. Now, to be sure, there are times when God calls believers to fully trust Him in such a way that requires a level of faith that seems odd to the world. 
but God also provides and works through means. Paul worked through the means of the church at Philippi to provide for Paul. When Paul had a need, he put it on the heart of the church at Philippi to gather a collection and to send it through Epaphroditus. So that arrived there in Paul's hands, not in a miraculous sense, but through the hard work of the people of the church at Philippi and through their generous heart to bring that to him. And God also through, works through the means of employment, right? How does God provide for some of our needs? He provides for some of our needs by giving us the ability to work and by giving us a job and by giving us the health to go to that job each and every day. The point is, is that we should never worry or fear because God will provide in one way or another. So whether God is providing through natural means by us working a job and getting the money that we need to provide for our needs, or by whether God works miraculously by something coming in from an unknown source or that we don't expect, God will provide all that we need. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? He says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is echoing the same promise that Paul here has surmised in one verse. That if we are in Christ Jesus, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first Jesus and his righteousness. Have that relational aspect, being in Christ, being obedient to him, doing what he's asked you to do. He says, and all these things will be added unto you. All the needs that you have, God will gloriously supply. If he does it for the birds of the air and the grass of the field, Jesus says, God will do it for you. Paul says, if you are in Christ Jesus, God will abundantly supply out of his riches everything that you need. So we see the provision of God. Secondly, I want you to notice the praise of God. Look at verse 20. Now to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we can officially say we've come to the true end of Paul's letter. Although at a couple of times, it seems as Paul was drawing it to a close, now we come to the very end. Now, it's not written here as it is in other places, but it's assumed by almost every biblical scholar that Paul did hear what he did in almost every letter that he wrote to a church. He writes the last portion of this letter in his own hand. Paul made frequent use of a secretary in, in transcribing most of his letters. There would be someone sitting there, and Paul would be rattling off these things, and they would be transcribing all of it down. 
But as he got to the very end of the letters, Paul would take that piece of parchment and he would take that quill from them and he would write out the latter portion of this letter in his own hand. It was a way of conveying his love and a personal touch to the believers there. One can almost imagine the arrival of this letter back in Philippi by the hand of Epaphroditus. He's been there. He's seen everything that's happened. And you can almost imagine as he walks back into town carrying this letter in his hand and the people there begin to see him walking back into town, the people who are members of the church, and they're so excited because they're going to hear back from what Paul is doing. They're going to hear back about what's happening to him. They've been so worried. They've been so concerned about what's happening there. And you can just imagine all of those believers gathering together in some building and the elders of the church getting up and opening up this letter. And they're starting in those very first words and just reading and pouring over everything that Paul said to them. The excitement would just continue to grow. The joy that Paul has been describing and desiring for the church would grow in them as they heard all that God had done for Paul the confidence that he had, the certainty that he had despite the uncertainty of his current situation, the joy of the Christian life, the call for unity and careful watchfulness, the need for radical trust and contentment, the provision of Christ. And all of this culminates as Paul here in his own handwriting writes these last words of conclusion. What this is in verse 20 is really a doxology. Doxology comes from two words, doxa meaning glory and logos meaning word. In its root definition, doxology means a word about glory. It's a cry of praise that gives glory and honor to God. We see it all the way through the scriptures. The psalmist would use it very often. Psalm chapter 72, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. John MacArthur said, doxologies in Scripture are fitting responses to doctrinal truth. This is really how we see Paul use it most often. He gets to the end of some great doctrinal truth, of some great description of what God is doing. And he's so excited. He's so passionate about God's work and about God's truth that all he can do is just say, all I can say in this moment is glory be to God. Praise God for he's good. All honor and glory go to him. In fact, if you read the book of Romans, you'll find that about halfway through, as Paul is kind of wrapping up those first chapters of Romans where he describes all of this great doctrinal richness, he can't even finish the rest of that letter before he goes praising God. Because he realizes that at a certain moment when we understand who God is and we understand what God is doing, it should drive our heart and our passions to just cry out in praise to God. And we know this, right? Because every Sunday, what do we do? We close by singing a doxology. And it's our way of acknowledging and demonstrating our worship of God and what he has done in the time when we gather here together. That, that song is the culmination of saying, thank you, God, for everything that you're doing. You receive all the praise, the honor, and the glory. Because God's given us a place to worship. He's given us a building that we can sit in on a Sunday morning in, in relative comfort, right? We're not worried about the wind blowing through in the wintertime. We're not worried about the ceiling falling in on us most of the time. He's given us health to come 
and to worship. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ to live together and to do life with. He's given us jobs and houses and families. He's given us a song in our heart to sing to him. And God has given us his word to hear and to know who he is and what he wants for us to do. Brothers and sisters, let us never lose light of the fact that God is so clear to us. No other religious system can say that. No other religious system, if you talk to them and you ask them, what does your God want you to do? Clearly tell me. They'll say, well, I I think he wants me to do this. But no, God has given us his word. We have no question, no doubt, no uncertainty on what God is saying to us each and every week. God has given us through Christ forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. He's indwelled us with his Holy Spirit to do this life. And the list goes on and on and on. And the very least that we can do is to offer our praise and adoration to him for all that he has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will continue to do. This is the reason that Paul always ends with a doxology. All of the goodness and faithfulness of God to his people, Paul says there's nothing else to do but just say praise God. And we, along with Paul this morning, echo that same sentiment. As we come to the end of this letter and we look back at all that we have learned, all that God has taught us through this letter, all we can do is just say, praise be to God. All glory and honor go to him. So we've seen the provision of God. We've seen the praise of God. I want you to thirdly notice with me the people of God. Look at verse 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Before Paul ceases to write, he takes time to offer a few greetings on behalf of himself and others. Now, you might be wondering this morning, how is this simple gesture relevant to us today? I mean, all Paul's saying here is, hello and goodbye from everybody here. We love you. How can this be relevant to an impactful on our lives? Now, overall, what we see here is the vast importance of the body of Christ and the fellowship therein. Many of those who are mentioned here had only known each other for limited amounts of time. Uh, they, they hadn't known each other for, for decades and for, uh, for millennia. They, they've only known each other for a short amount of time. And some of those, no doubt, because of the time that had elapsed between Paul's first visit there at Philippi and this letter, some of these had never met face to face. But it didn't matter. Because the otherworldly love and fellowship inside the universal church is not based upon the length of time or the intimacy of the relationship, but is instead based upon the foundation of the relationship. That foundation being Christ. In Christ, we have all been made siblings in the same family. No matter our location, no matter our age, our social status, The familiar connection is what permits Christians who have never met before to meet for the very first time and to feel like they've known each other for the entirety of their lives. I'm sure you've experienced that before. You've been on vacation somewhere, you visit a church, or maybe you're just at a coffee shop and you sit down and you strike up a conversation with someone else and you find out that they're a Christian. And immediately, in that moment, there's a connection that happens when we meet another brother and sister in Christ, that you can carry on a conversation with that person as if you've known them your entire lives. How does that happen? Because of Christ. Because that's what it means to be. Our our relationships, our foundations are built upon Christ. 
So note here that Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. There are two things I want to look at here. The first is the use of the word saint. In modern times, the usage of this word has almost fallen out of vogue and is used usually only in a couple of misapplied contexts. At first, people use the word saint and usually describes uh, somebody who is being holier than thou, right? Or a person who might describe themselves as holier than thou. It's like, oh, well, that's, you know, Saint so-and-so over there. You know, they never do anything wrong. It's really oftentimes used as a, uh, as a degrading term of someone who thinks that they're better than someone else. And secondly, it's still used inside the Roman Catholic Church to describe those individuals who the Roman Church have elevated to sainthood. So a person or an individual who uh, did something great on this earth, either through humanitarian means or spiritual means or, or other kinds of things, that causes them to be elevated. They go, they go straight to heaven. Right? They don't have to suffer through purgatory. They don't have to suffer through indulgences or anything else. They get elevated straight to heaven because they've been made a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. And after they are elevated to sainthood, these individuals are almost revered in a godlike sense inside the church. The Catholic Church calls for other people to pray to them, to venerate them, and to otherwise recognize their elevated status. But now we know that both of those uses of the word saint are incorrect. Saint is not a term for somebody who acts that they are better than someone else, and saint is not a term for people who are higher in their Christian life than others, because there is no one that is higher. There is no elevation to sainthood inside of the Bible. The true use of the word saint is a descriptor of anyone who is a Christian. If you're here this morning, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Now, I will warn you, the world does not like you to use that term in describing yourself. You tell a lost person, because I've had this in heaven, well, are, are you a sinner? I said, no, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. And how, how dare you? But the word saint just means one who is set apart. It means one who's been set apart by God, and it refers to the idea that Christ has worked in us to set us apart from sin and to set us to the work of the kingdom. So in Christ, we are all saints of God. And I would encourage you today, brothers and sisters, if you don't already understand and see this, call yourselves as you are. You are a saint of God. You say, well, pastor, you, you know, I struggle with sin. You know, well, so, so do we all. But the struggle with sin does not change who we are in Christ. We're still saints. Now, and let me point this out, that Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, the church by far out of any other New Testament church had the worst problems with sin, who was in the worst condition that Paul over and over had to chastise for some of the silly and foolish things they were doing. Listen to what he says in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, and all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If Paul could still call the believers at the church at Corinth saints, we can call ourselves saints, because it's not what we do, but who we are in, in Christ. The second thing I want you to note here, just in these opening things, all uh, greet every saint in Christ Jesus, <laughs> is that Paul here not addresses some of the saints, 
And again, not in a general way to all of the saints, but to each and every individual person in the body of Christ at Philippi. From the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the poorest, from the baby Christian to the mature Christian, from the common person in the church to those who are in leadership in the church. Every person in the church matters to God, and every person mattered to Paul. He loved all of them individually, and he wanted them to know this. He wanted each person in that church to know, I care about you, and God cares about you. This would have had a profound meaning to those who were having this letter read to them. Thirdly, we see that it is in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that word again. Paul used it in verse 19, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And now he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's talking about their position in Christ. It's our place in Christ that brings us all together as one. Next, Paul gives the greeting of the brethren who are working alongside of him. That is, those men who were laboring alongside of him in the fight of faith. Now, Paul doesn't give a list of the individuals here, but based upon other writings and based upon the timetable of his life, we can make some educated guesses as to who this would be. Now, we know from the beginning of the letter that Timothy is there with him. But this list could also include Tychicus, Aristarchus, Philemon, Onesimus, and perhaps even Mark and Luke. All of these had the potential to be there alongside of Paul in his ministry. And he's sending back this greeting from them. These brethren wanted their letter, wanted this letter to include their greetings because they, again, shared the apostles' love and concern for the church. Finally, Paul sends the greeting of the entire church at Rome. All of those who had been believers when he arrived and those who had come to faith because of his ministry there. It's a beautiful thing here to see the love of the churches for one another. He says, all the saints greet you. The church at Rome, the entirety of the body of Christ at Rome sends their warm regards and greetings to you. There was no spirit of envy or competition between the church at Rome and the church at Philippi. The church at Rome wasn't saying, well, you know, Paul, you know, we appreciate what those Philippians are doing over there, but, uh, you know, you know how those people are. Right? You know, we, we appreciate them, but, you know, we, we just really wish that God would do something here. There wasn't any spirit of envy or competition. And the reason that I mention this is because I think it's so clear here. We see the love that the individual churches, not just the people, but the church itself had for other churches. Because in, in modern Christianity, there can tend to be an attitude among churches that we're in competition with one another. And maybe we don't say it out loud. But if another church is growing or doing well, we have the tendency to think, well, why is God blessing that church? Why is God doing that there? And this must never be the case. Brothers and sisters, if a church, now listen to that word, if a church is faithfully preaching the gospel, if they're faithfully reaching lost people with the truth of Christ, if they're disciplining their members and discipling their members and growing their members, and if God is blessing them with growth, with growth, then we should and must 
rejoice. Even if it seems that at that particular season that our own church isn't experiencing the same. The churches of the New Testament found great joy in the news that God was at work in a sister church. And why wouldn't they? Because that meant that God was doing what he had promised he was going to do. We look out and we see churches who are faithfully preaching the gospel growing. We should rejoice because God is fulfilling his promises. If we want God to do the same in our own church, how dare we not rejoice with other churches when he does it there? Now, of those who sends their greetings, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 22. He says, especially those of Caesar's household. There was a special group of people inside the church at Rome that wanted to send their greetings, and Paul wanted them to come along as well, and it was those who were of Caesar's household. He had mentioned this incredible work of God earlier in the letter. In, in chapter 1, he said, So my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, by the household of Caesar, he's not talking about the immediate family of Caesar, but he's talking about those who worked in the household or the employment of Caesar. This would have included guards, slaves, housekeepers, gardeners, really anybody else who, who worked inside the, the, the household of, of Caesar. And now it could have very well been that there were some those who were in the service of Caesar who knew individuals at the church at Philippi. You remember Philippi was a Roman colony, and that colony was filled with many men who had formerly been soldiers under the employ of the Roman government. And so perhaps they had friends there, and they knew that they would be excited to hear that they had professed faith in Christ, and they had come to Christ, and that God was working inside the Roman Empire. But most of all, just the knowledge for the church at Philippi to know that through Paul's circumstances, through Paul's imprisonment, that God was spreading the gospel so deeply and highly into the Roman Empire would have brought great joy to the church at Philippi. There's a beautiful thing to note here that I had never considered before until I was studying this week, and it was pointed out by one commentator, and he said this, quote, there is hardly any sentence which shows more how Christianity had infiltrated even into the highest positions in the empire. It was to be another 300 years before Christianity became the religion of the empire, but already the first signs of ultimate triumph of Christ were to be seen, end quote. So in just this short sentence, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We see that the gospel had already infiltrated into the highest political positions that existed in the modern world at that time. Now, as this commentator pointed out, it would be 300 years before Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. But where did it start? It started here with the church at Philippi, sending their gifts to Paul in Rome. And it started with Paul's ministry there as he was in prison, as the gospel continued to go forth. Why is that important? Because we must never become so focused on immediate results that we forget that God is not on the same timetable as us. It would have been very easy for Paul, it would have been very easy for the church at Philippi, maybe some 20 years later, to say, well, God, you know, you, you saved a bunch of those guys in the household of Caesar. Why don't we see anything? Why don't we see the effects of, of, of those who were saved? Why don't we see it happen? Why don't we see change happening in the Roman Empire? Because sometimes God works and it happens in, in moments, right? It happens in days, weeks, months. But sometimes God's works 
And it happens in centuries. But we do not cease our work. Brothers and sisters, what we are doing here at Barberville, we will see some immediate results that will happen in weeks, months, and years to come. But the greater part of what we are doing here, if the Lord tarries in his coming, is we are working on what Waynesville will look like in 50, 100, and 200 years from now. Because we're going to faithfully preach the gospel. And we're going to raise up generations of families inside this church that will continue to faithfully preach the gospel. And so we see here, Paul says, those who have Caesar's household reach you. And and, in such a small thing, they didn't even realize what was happening. But God's promise here was even that he was still continuing to work. The last thing I want you to notice, we see the people of God. Now I want you to finally notice the pronouncement of God. Last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's final word to the church is the same as his opening words to them. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, he closes with a final prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why? Because there's nothing that you and I need more than God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We've all partaken of it. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it, but God gives it to us and he gives it to us freely and in abundance. Paul would say in Romans chapter 16, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. To the church at Corinth, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Everything that Paul has talked about inside this letter comes to us through Jesus Christ, but it comes to us on behalf of the grace of God. Christ. It is given to us even though we don't deserve it. It is given to us even though we can't pay him back for it. William Hendrickson in his commentary said, if this pronouncement is accepted with a believing heart, then from this basic blessing of grace, all others flow forth, filling the very spirit, the inner personality viewed as the contact point between God and his child with the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. We can have the tendency to think that if we want the joy of the Christian life, the peace that passes understanding, the contentment of Christ, the provision of God, that we've got to do something to earn it. But Paul says here that it's all by his grace. Let us rest this morning in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, what sweet and precious promises we find here from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, but also to us at the church at Barberville. We thank you, God, that we know that your promises are yes and amen. That it comes to us, not because of our goodness and our obedience, but because of your grace. Lord, help us to rest in you. Help us to rest in Christ. Help us to know, Lord, that these promises are true for us because you have given them and you cannot lie. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. 
And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name.